Welcome to season one, episode four of What Are You So Effing Afraid Of? A podcast sponsored by the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond, where we share a multi-voice exploration of issues to promote longevity equity, disrupt commonly held beliefs about aging, and share some best kept secrets emerging from evidence-based gerontology. I'm your co-host, Ann Welliford, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Alexa Vanertrek and Nico Stankulescu. In season one, we're diving into commonly held beliefs, fears, and myths about aging, old age, and longevity. Myths about sex, myths equating old age with sadness, irrelevance, and isolation. So listen along and share with us, what are you so effing afraid of? In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Tracy Gendron, Chair and Associate Professor in VCU's Department of Gerontology and Executive Director of the Virginia Center on Aging. Tracy's research aims to understand, raise awareness, and disrupt the deeply embedded, normalized, and invisible ageism that is within all of us. Tracy has a new book out this year titled Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. So let's jump in and pass it over to Alexa for her conversation with Tracy. I'm going to get right into it. I am I am really curious to know um, how you describe yourself and the work you do and what being a gerontologist is when meeting people for the first time who might be outside of the gerontology world. Yeah, that is such a great question. And I'm so glad to be here with you. Thank you for having me and for having this amazing conversation. Um, I think talking to each gerontologist is really important because we all do have different stories and we all have, do have different paths as to how that we got here, but we have this kind of shared passion around what we do and shared passion for educating people about aging and what it means to be older. So, you know, for me, when people ask what I do, the first thing I will say is that I'm a gerontologist. And then, as you know, they will say, what's that? Because <laughs> that's how that goes. Yep. Um, and then you kind of get into, well, it's about the study of aging and it's holistic from a biopsychosocial and spiritual perspective. And then they sometimes counter with, so you mean you, you know, are interested in old people and you're like, yeah, that's part of it. But getting more into it is that aging is about lifelong development and that we are all aging in every moment of our lives, every stage of our lives. And that when you are thinking about working with older people to really take a developmental perspective and think about the, the culmination of all the lived experiences and life events that made them who they are. Um, that's gerontology, you know, that is what, what's really meaningful about it is that it's interspersed all throughout our lives and that to really understand how to best support, help people thrive in older adulthood, we need to really focus on all of their experiences throughout their lives, both positive and negative, both protective and risk factors. Um, so, and I think when I start to talk of it, talk about it more as a lifespan approach and more as a lifespan mm -hmm. discipline that tends to engage people in a little bit of a different way, more than it just being about older adulthood and older people. And, um, that also is a great place to start talking about ageism and why we think of it only about older people. Great. So that's, that's usually for the first time, kind of my, my quick pitch and how I start to engage with people. And so 
you you take the lifespan approach. Can you sh- like share a little bit more about what that lifespan approach is and where it comes from? Yeah. So I think um, the way that I approach it when I'm talking to people and specifically when I'm coming from this lens of ageism is understanding that throughout life, we're always going to have growth. We're going to have adaptation. We're going to have loss. Um, and that that's not something that is only relevant for later life and Mm -hmm. older adulthood, that we have those experiences all throughout our lives. So to see a lifespan approach means to see the multi-directionality and uh, the multi-level layered nature of aging. And that um, it has all of those things, all of those Mm -hmm. components in one experience. Mm -hmm. And that I, I think is important in addressing ageism because we're moving away from a single story of aging as decline. And I know Mm -hmm. we all are all familiar with that means, but that most people see aging as a singular process of decline to seeing it as a lifespan event and something that continues to evolve and change through growth and development. And physical decline can actually be a part of growth and development. As our bodies change, we can develop emotionally and spiritually and socially at the same time. So to, to really underlie the complexity of it, I think needs a lifespan approach. Right. Well, so yeah, we're, I mean, we are all aging and aging is relevant to all of us. So is that kind of how you got interested in, in this field? Were you through like a lifespan approach kind of maybe unconsciously? Maybe, maybe. Um, I think I really got interested in this field. There are a couple different things I think that happened. Um, I had an amazing, really robust relationship with my grandparents and was Uh. really close with them growing up. And I think that they always taught me that aging was more holistic. I never saw aging and being around older people as something that was draining for me or something that um, was a nice thing to do because I was a good person. I always thought of it as something that was really enriching in my Mm -hmm. life and always had an affinity for hanging out with people that were older than myself. And I, I really do think a lot of that has to do with how amazing my grandparents were and how they role modeled so much of that for me. I, I can still you know, think of so many conversations we had and things that I saw about how they lived their life that were absolutely inspiring to me. So I think that's a piece of it is that I had a natural affinity. I had these amazing role models as I was growing up. And then I actually remember a really specific incident when I was a senior in high school and I was taking a psychology class and it was my first psychology class. And there was one particular lecture where the instructor mentioned this word gerontology. I remember it. I remember sitting in class and I don't remember a whole lot from high school, but I remember this. <laughs> and she had mentioned that, you know, the baby boomers were getting older and that there's this field called gerontology and it's a growing field and there's going to be all of these jobs and all of this need. And that was such an aha moment for me where mm. I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do right then. I was like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. So I really, I looked for a school after that, that had a psychology program and then found one that had a minor in gerontology. And that was it. I was like ready to go in my career. So I think it was kind of all of those things that came together that shaped my desire. I didn't realize you've been in this field for since undergrad. Yeah. 
almost since high school, I guess, because it was top of mind when you were in high school. It was top of mind when I was in wow. high school. Yeah. And then got an, a minor in it and then went straight on to the master's degree. I just, what was, knew. what was the minor like in gerontology? That was actually great. Um, I remember just taking a couple of classes that, you know, really resonated with me and for sure was the validation that I needed, that this was the field that I wanted. And then I remember that there was a field experience and I can't remember the name of the agency that I was paired up with, but I worked with an agency and I did um, kind of like these home visits for people that needed extreme cleaning Mm. and would go out to these homes to assess whether we could send a team of people out to help them clean their homes. And that was both fascinating and somewhat traumatic (laughs) all at the same time. Um, But again, it, it validated for me that this was the passion that I had. This is the work that I wanted to do. Um, And that there were a lot of people out there that would benefit from having more gerontologists to advocate for them. Yeah. I just knew. And then I found VCU gerontology and that's where I went for my (laughs) master's degree. So when you were um, in your undergrad in this minor, were, like, were you thinking through like that holistic lens then, or was it more learned through your master's degree? It was definitely more learned through my master's degree. Okay. Um, yeah, certainly the master's degree at VCU introduced me to a lot of the the theory that I that I love today and that I've built all of my knowledge on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so strong even back then in the biopsychosocial approach and really picking those three apart. I think since I've been a faculty member, um, there's been tremendous learning that has taken place, probably even more so than when I was a student. Because when you really allow yourself the space and time to get that deep into the material and you have a team of people surrounding you that are as fascinated and want to look at it at a scholarly level as well as a practical level, it like cracks things open Mm -hmm. that you never would have had the opportunity for that any other way. So it's like growing on top of growing on top of growing. So the, the master's program was great. Being a faculty member has been even better. Yeah. Is, um, so your, your research interest is ageism and, and so what, what kind of most surprises you about your work as a faculty member now? And, um, I mean, through your research, through, um, teaching, what most surprises you about, about those? I think there's a couple things. Um, I think what surprises me most personally is that there's always so much more to learn and always so much more to know, even with ageism. It's like, I guess with any form of discrimination, oppression, you never fully have a handle on all the way that it manifests. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you peel back the layers, you keep seeing more and more as you go deeper and deeper. Um, And, you know, I remember some of my aha moments with ageism of how I saw it in society in a way I never saw it before, how I saw it in myself in a way that I never saw it before, you know, suddenly thinking about using the term old, um, referring to myself as old, being insulted when somebody told me I was old. Every time that happens, it's a new opportunity to reflect and go deeper. 
And um, that has been really powerful for me. And I think it will always be that way. At least I hope it's always that way. Yeah. Because I want to continue to grow in it. And as it evolves, I want to evolve. So I think that that has been, has been really impactful for me. And then I think um, what always surprises me is how little people know about it. I guess because I've surrounded myself with people that are like-minded and as passionate about ageism and understanding ageism as I am, when you go out into the world and you hear people say things that are so blatantly ageist, or you do a talk and it's like eye-opening for people, that's great. Mm -hmm. It also surprises me every time, every time I'm like, Mm -hmm. wait a second, I thought everybody knew this (laughs) and they don't. Yeah. You feel so woke. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And it's great when you can see the light turn on for people or when you get feedback after doing a talk or having a conversation saying, oh my gosh, I never thought about it that way. Um, But yeah, at that same time, it continues to surprise me. Like, how do you not see this? How do you not know this? I forget that I am so insulated and surrounded by people that get it, that most people still don't. Although more people, more people do now than used to. And I believe that that will continue. Yeah, I think it, I think it's really important to acknowledge as a department, as a professional in gerontology, it's important to acknowledge like when we were wrong or Mm -hmm. a time we were maybe incorrect or said something that we now regret saying. And I think that was a lot of, and I guess the center of that is just unlearning in general. And I had to do a lot of unlearning in my first year of my master's. Because even, even down to like products I had in my bathroom and like the, where my money was going. And, um, when (laughs) my mom bought me like an anti-aging retinol cream to be, to, to like have that hard conversation and be like, I don't want to, I don't want to fund this anymore. I don't want to fund these ages products anymore. And, and, but I mean, that's a really specific example, but it, it took a lot of unlearning for me in my first year. And some, sometimes I'll talk to people about ageism and they'll have that aha moment immediately. And it yep. is so satisfying. Yep. Like I had a conversation with one of my uh, mom's friend a couple months ago, and she was talking about quote, putting her mom in a home, like putting her in a home. And I was like, when you say, well, I think then it then circled back to me talking about gerontology. And I was like, for example, when, when we say we're putting a parent somewhere, doesn't that sound like super condescending? And me and her had like an hour long conversation about it. And after the hour was over, I was like, do you want to get your master's in gerontology? Cause you are so passionate about this. And it was so cool. And then, yeah, some people, um, it just takes a little bit of just more conversation with them. It's interesting. I wonder Um, if that goes back to having that good relationship with your grandparents that you mentioned, because I feel like every time I talk to someone in our program or who's in gerontology, that's kind of, um, a constant, they had a really good relationship with an old person in their life. So definitely. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people who end up seeking education in gerontology have had either a, a a good role model when they Mm. were younger Mm -hmm. or that they have had deepening relationships, um, providing care or receiving care from someone, um, or they kind of fell into a job with older people and realized that they loved it. 
because they didn't realize how enriching it is. And in part, because, you know, how many times when you say I work with older people, do you get people saying, oh, you must be such a special person. You must be so patient. You must be so kind. And you're like, what? You know, these are just people. They're people that are a later stage in life. Um, So I think people come to it in so many different ways, but I think being driven by that personal passion is definitely one. And I've found that when I talk about ageism with people, connecting with them personally first is is a much more helpful approach than either talking about the language feeling like you're, you know, policing them in some way, say this, don't say that it's making that heart connection as to why this matters, why this should matter, what it means for your health, what it means for longevity, what it could mean for your business. Um, you know, really getting them to connect with it on a personal level is a much more impactful way. People don't like being told what they should or should not say or should Mm -hmm. or should not do. And especially without knowing why. So, you know, it's really easy to should people and and tell them that without giving them the source of motivation as to why this matters. So, yeah, it's it's so interesting when you talk to people about it, because there's this, I guess, duality of people wanting to live a really long time and wanting to have, you know, live till they're hundred years old and be really independent, but then they're still like talking about getting older. Like it's the worst thing to ever happen. Exactly. Or they're just talk- like using really ageist language. And it's like, but don't you want to like be really happy mm-hmm. and healthy when you're older? And do you think like talking about your future self like that is helpful? Exactly. And, and then you hear people say, I just want to just, just kill me when I turn 65. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, I, I, I think it, it's just deeply embedded so deeply embedded. And, and it's not only that it's really complicated. Mm -hmm. So it has a really long history that, you know, all these pieces kind of come together to create where we are now. And unless you really understand how all those pieces came together, um, it's, it's hard to unpack it all. So it's the social construction of retirement. It's, you know, how we, how caregiving became pathologized, um, how the era of the industrial revolution impacted our thoughts about aging and work um, and older people as disposable. It's like layer and layer and layer. And then how our own discipline kind of evolved from disengagement and activity theory and how that contributed to the narrative, to successful aging, to, you know, all of these things came together at different points in time to create the narrative we have today about aging. Mm -hmm. So it's not just unlearning, it's unlearning (laughs) layers and layers and centuries and centuries um, of things that have really just Getting, gotten us to this point in time. It's complicated. It's so complicated. I know you're really right now interested in the history of ageism and I don't, I don't know how, how public it is, but I know it's a big research interest for you right now, particularly in writing. And I, so when you were doing kind of research on the history of ageism, what, what, um, did you find like a specific year or moment or era where ageism really took off? Was it like industrialization or was it printing press? 
Yeah, it was. And you can say it. Yes, I wrote a book on this. Okay. I'm happy to share that we are. <laughs> okay. Um, and yes, it's called Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. And it's coming out March 1st of 2022. Uh, I know, very, very excited about it. And um, yeah, and it did. I, so let me take a step back before I answer that question. So have you read the book um, Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram Kendi? I have not. Okay. So when I read that book, I was so inspired um, in so many different ways. His writing is quite profound and his thoughts are quite profound. And the way that he laid out the history and the story of racism and how it, you know, intersected with policy and how it, you know, created these, these personal feelings and attitudes um, it really affected me and it was very eye-opening on so many levels. Um, and it truly inspired me to say, I want to understand more about how ageism evolved using that same perspective. He took this really linear historical approach that really just was like, oh my God, okay, now I see how layered this is and how complicated it is and why there's no one answer to dismantling any form of discrimination or oppression. Mm -hmm. So that prompted me to say, I want to know this and I want to write about it. So in terms of eras, it's all of them. You know, I started writing from the very beginning and looking at how elders were portrayed in biblical times in ancient Greece and ancient China um, and ancient Rome and found from the very beginning, it's a complicated story. Yeah. From the very beginning, you'll see things um, like the first hieroglyphic that depicts an older person hunched over with a cane. Mm. So you'll see that there was kind of this, this narrative of aging as disease, but then there was also this counter narrative of elders being esteemed, especially mm -hmm. in the church, especially in Judeo-Christian history. So from the very beginning, we've had a complicated relationship with aging and with being older. And then to see how that then transcends into technology and medicine and yes, the industrial revolution and how these historical events created um, retirement through benefits and how that totally changed the landscape and how mobility and industrialization away, um, urbanization away from agriculture separated families and how it actually sparked nursing as a profession and then how the civil war, you know, also impacted that mm -hmm. um, and how women became more likely to be caregivers and nurses and then how that led to segregating people based on age and ability. And then how that led to the rise of ableism because we thought people at a certain age weren't old enough or well enough to be able to stay at work. Yeah. Um, and it goes on and on and on. So it's a story that, you know, each chapter in the book talks about a different age of time from the beginning all the way through the era of a global pandemic. Yeah. Um, and it tries to unmask all of the different factors that have come together that have created this narrative that aging is about decline, that we don't have an, a readily available alternative to that because we have, let's say, retirement is what we think of as a life stage, which is based on withdrawal, not based on purpose, not based on development. So 
And then it ends with kind of the story of elderhood as filling in is what I see as an anti-ageism alternative, because it really does change the narrative a little bit of one of older age as retirement and withdrawal and a very limited definition of success um, and a lot of fear of dependency and a lot of fear of caregiving to one that has a lot more potential. So I could talk about this forever, but it's there's a lot of stuff in there that happened to get us to where we are today. And it was really interesting dissecting it and kind of learning through it myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's I talked uh, with uh, Dr. Jenny Inker about this last week about the concept of like disengaging and productivity and why in a society we value productivity so much. Yeah. And if I think just having the option for me in my own experience, when I get older, having the option to not be as productive and that being accepted by my community and mm-hmm. I mean, but then what, what is productive? Because if I have family and I'm and I have a friend group and a network and I, we're all being we're all supporting each other, then maybe that's productivity. But as far as working goes, if I'm not an outcast because I'm not technically um, making money, is that such a bad thing? Like, right. if I don't want to do it, is it really the end of the world? And really understanding how, what we value as a society in general. Um, exactly. Exactly. And I think through that, we can see how a lot of these definitions of what is productive, what is successful, um, what is optimal, they have been predefined for us, right? In very narrow ways. So it's limited our opportunity to create our own definition of success, our own definition of productivity. And again, when you go back to the history and you go back to the development of our own discipline, um, we did some of that. We did, you know, by the, and we meant well, and I'm glad Mm -hmm. that we did because that's how you learn. So you have these fundamental theories and that's where you begin. And then you build off of them and build off of them. So things like disengagement were important. Things like activity theory were important. Things like successful aging were important. Um, But it's also important to see inadvertently how they contributed to the narrative. Um, And I think successful aging is actually a great example of that. So is successful aging, is that, how does that fall into the elderhood sphere? Are they so, related? Yeah, I think successful aging. Um, so Rowan Kahn in the late eighties and the early nineties were really leaning into successful aging and I, they were doing it for the right reasons, you know, and it was because we had this dominant view of aging as being all about decline, decrepitude, people that were not contributing to society, not engaging with society. And they were like, hey, wait, no, there's a really large portion of the population, if not in fact, most older people that are engaging with life, that are really successful in the way that they age. And they were also looking at it so that they could kind of disentangle um, pathological from non-pathological aging. And they did that so that we could focus on prevention which was also really important, right? We have to understand what are the things that increase longevity and to be able to focus on prevention means that we can help more people live more robust lives. So I think all of that was great and the intention was great, but the downside of it was that it contributed to ageism and ableism um, in, in some really drastic ways by having a really narrow definition of successful aging as maintaining activity engagement 
and kind of like the, the roles that one would see in midlife moved us farther away from being able to define elderhood as this unique and different stage of life. Right. So how is it unique and different from midlife, from adulthood, from adulthood in and of itself? Um, And I think when you pull those things apart and you realize that we don't have to be physically or cognitively um, at the top of our game in order to claim success in elderhood, it really opens up the door for saying everybody is aging successfully whether you have a dementia disorder, whether you have any kind of mobility limitations, um, there is still joy and purpose to be found. Right. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that totally answered your question, but I know it does going with it. It makes me think of like the ads I see for assisted living. Like it's like really spunky people who look old but like they're still really independent and active and it's like an ad for an assisted living. Yep. And people who are looking for assisted living probably need some assistance with their activities of daily living. So it doesn't really make sense, but it's like saying, come here, you'll be happy. And this is what, like, this is what happy aging looks like. And it just doesn't really, I'm like not connecting the dots there for who their target audience is Yeah, and why that, why that, I mean, we, none of us want to be in pain and I think, but it's really hard to avoid. And we know there is like physical decline with aging, but there's also a a ton of things we improve. And, um, and like, if we're denying that, and if we're, if we're not understanding that full picture, we can't, we can't really make the aging experience better for ourselves or for anyone else. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then I I think you take it one step further than that and you see how we pathologize death Mm. and that's yet another layer. We see kind of, all right, look, so one piece of the book um, I wrote about, um, I was in a supermarket and I saw a tabloid headline that said Betty White giving up on life at age 98 or something like that. (laughs) And it was like in that moment that it was like, we see death as a failure right? Giving up on life at 98. And I was like, wow, that's yet another layer that I have yet to really think deeply about and disentangle. And it is very much a part and parcel with ageism. Um, You know, if we live a life where we're fearing death and fear of death is a very complicated construct, but seeing it as a failure, um, anxiety about it, we're taking away from the joys of life. And ultimately we're rejecting the inevitable. We are going to die. We are mortal beings. We are going to die. So I think it, it has to be a part of the whole conversation is that we stop seeing that as a failure, acknowledge the fears that we have around it, acknowledge the anxieties that we have around it, but maybe stop trying to outrun what is inevitable and instead, you know, normalize the conversation. And then that helps to normalize aging and the whole conversation about loss as a part of life. So like it's deep. (laughs) It's so deep. It's so deep. And the way you're describing it is making me think of this is this is like I might just be confusing myself now by overthinking everything. But I think everything like ageism in general, my theory based on the research I have not done on this, but is that it's like attached to the ego in a lot of ways, like Mm -hmm. the fear of losing ourselves and our ego and the fear of death. I think is the reason why a lot of people 
push away thoughts of themselves as aging and it results in ageism. And for me, it took a lot of time for me to think about my own death. And I actually have, I'm at a point now where I'm kind of excited about it, which sounds scary to say out loud, but I am really, really excited to know what happens. I'm like, so curious. And so I think, (laughs) I think not in like a way that is um, unhealthy, but I am like, I'm just very curious. I've read a lot of books. I went through a phase where I was reading a ton of stories about people who claimed they died and what, what they experienced. And then they came back to their physical body and the world. And, and I just, I think it's so fascinating. And I think getting to that point has helped me shed a lot of internalized ageism for myself and it unlearning the ageism I've, I've, I grew up understanding. I love that. Yeah. That's really deep. That's really deep. And I, I really love that. <laughs> and yeah, I think it, it is all intertwined. It is all, you know, part of this larger story. And I think, you know, to your point, if you look specifically at people that work in healthcare, I think ageism um, is really driven in part by, you know, terror management theory. So being so afraid of your inevitable demise, your future, that you actually want to push away the people that trigger that in you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you're so acutely aware of your own mortality when you're, when you're working around old people who are possibly dying or who are physically declining. Exactly. And your ego is like, nah, uh. I I need to push that away. And I think because we don't talk about it, because um, it's something that is so pathologized and so negative, that kind of goes unchecked, right? Especially in health professions. And so you wonder, and I know there's a lot of reasons why we don't have enough people that are going into geriatrics that are becoming, um, you know, specializing in, in working with older people. We don't talk about this component of maybe why that is that maybe because it's one of the drivers what's that you you think it's fear-based I do I think that that's a piece of it I don't think that's the whole of it by any means um but I do think that there's this invisible fear that's there that is unacknowledged unrecognized and uncommunicated we just don't really talk about it so it's a lot it's a lot easier just to push it away it's so frustrating too as as a gerontologist and as someone who's worked with um, elders in general, because people, when I tell them that I'm in gerontology and when I was working as an aide, like they were, they were like, that must be so depressing. Mm -hmm. And some of my favorite moments as a professional in my career has been face-to-face hand in hand with someone older than me. So it's really sad to think that people are either not interested in the field or think the field is depressing because you're, they, they're assuming you're just around people who are declining. And that's not the case. No, not at all. Not at all. And there's plenty of people that work with people that are declining, are at end of life and can see a lot of meaning in that work, you know, a lot of joy in that work. Right. Um, A lot of ways that we can learn and grow from people that are at end of life. So yeah, to just couch it as depressing is depressing. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're depressing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, like I said, if, if you think it's depressing, you're going to get older. So it makes me sad to think that you think getting older is depressing because it's one of life's greatest surprises, I think, is, is how happy people get as they get older. And, I love and, that. And people, life's greatest surprises. I love yes. that. I'm going to use that. I love it. Please. <laughs> it, I think it's wonderful. And, and 
But then there's like this whole other layer where we know that most people who are getting older, who are older, live independently in their own communities and Mm -hmm. aren't in a long-term care setting. Not that like long-term care is really important. There are people who need those, who need that support, Mm -hmm. which is totally fine. But also people who are working in long-term care, maybe don't realize that this is not like it's back to single story. This is not a single story. You don't get older and immediately have to go into an independent community and then assisted living and then a nursing home and then you die. It does it just doesn't really work out like that for most people. So exactly. And it's not what most people want. Yeah. Most people want to remain in their communities. Most people totally. want to remain, you know, in their homes, whether they're independent or not. They yeah. want to be able to, to be around differently aged people around mm-hmm. their neighbors, around their family members. Um, yeah, older people don't want to be segregated, but we yeah. have created many, many ways that we segregate them. And not just in nursing homes or assisted livings, but even thinking about like retirement communities, gated off places that may be beautiful, but that don't have multiple generations living there. And you know, how sad is that? Because everybody misses out. Yeah, intergenerationality is like has always been top of mind for me since I started. I think it's really important. And then I learned about NORCs, like the naturally occurring retirement communities. And, you know, I have grandparents who live in a 55 plus community, but it's not, I mean, I don't even know if it's, if it is mandatory that you're 55 and older, I think it naturally occurs. And then I go and I run into someone in the lobby who's older and they're like, hi, how are you? Who is your grandparent? Who is your parent? Like they're really interested in talking. And I don't think I could, I don't think it needs to be just older. Like I think old, old people sometimes want to be in like, you know, around similar people in their cohort or um, people that they relate to, which is super normal. Um, Mm -hmm. But also I think everyone, all ages can benefit from being um, around someone and learning from someone who is a different age than them. Absolutely. And I think that's actually the most organic and effective intervention against ageism is just to have differently aged people spend time together um, and learn from each other. And so we don't realize that these physical structures that we've built that segregate people based on age um, contribute to ageism in really profound ways, because we are actually building structures that keep people apart. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yep. So, well, so I, I mean, is, has there been any improvement you've seen in, in this, in the last few years, have you seen any, any, a wonderful improvement in longevity and aging, whether it's in America or in a different country that really sticks out to you? That's, that's current. Yeah. I've seen, well, I'll say first, I've seen incredible growth in um, recognition of ageism. That is definitely an improvement that is taking place. There are more campaigns. There are more people that are doing research on it. There are more people that are speaking about it. There are more coalitions that are developing. So it's really, really exciting to see that there is some momentum around that. And I truly believe that's actually going to increase longevity, right? Because we know that our well-being is wrapped up in how we feel about ourselves, about older people. So um, I'm, I'm definitely very excited to see that happen. Yeah. Otherwise, I think that, you know, there have been incredible advances in technology. There have been incredible advances in medicine and preventative care that are certainly making uh, more opportunities for people to live longer. 
I think the fear I have with it is how uneven it is and how, you know, we really need to look at the structural and personal inequities that keep certain groups of people from achieving that same level of longevity that other yeah. people achieve. So, yeah, I think we continue to make great strides. I think we continue to have a tremendous amount of work to do in front of us. Um, and, you know, yes, that's frustrating. It's also really exciting and why we need more gerontologists in the world. <laughs> so it's motivating totally. because, you know, we need to get people in and educated and then out in the world to be able to really tackle these things at all levels from policy to working individually with people um, to kind of macrocultural issues. So, yeah, would, um, it, it's exciting. Would you say COVID obviously started a, a huge master cultural narrative around disposing of old people, which is terrible, but do you also think maybe it needed to happen to open everyone's eyes up to ageism? Yeah. Yeah. I think COVID was a flashpoint. Um, and my hope is that we can take what was so awful and horrible um, about it, but that we can finally see it a little bit more clearly. So ageism was always there. COVID really exposed its ugly underbelly yeah. in a way that it never had before from a structural level, um, like not valuing people that work in long-term care, having them be the last to get PPE, being the last to acknowledge them as important heroes in, in yeah. the battle against COVID that are putting their lives against the line to those. And a lot horrible... of them are older. <laughs> a lot of them yeah. are literally older who were yeah. in this population of people that they wanted to, that we as a society were thinking of disposing of like, exactly. And they were also working yeah, I... with little acknowledgement or appreciation from yeah. a lot of people. Um, to, you know, the horrible generational rhetoric that came up around it with OK Boomer and Boomer Remover and, you know, all of that blaming and shaming that we tend to do around generations. Yeah. So it was all on full display. And yeah, that older people were, their lives were just not as important. This is a disease that affects older people. So why should we care? Right. And yes, it was horrible. At the same time, um, I hope it was illuminating. Right. I, I hope that it certainly brought more attention. It seems like it to me when I look on social media, when I go even just Google articles about ageism, there's so many more than there used to be a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think it has really prompted it to be more in mainstream consciousness. And now my hope is we start to see how ageism and ableism need to be kind of the next pieces that are meaningfully embedded in diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that they've largely been left out of that conversation. And right. it's time to really pull them into the conversation. What do you, what do you mean by the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion and ableism going hand in hand? Uh, well, the DEI initiatives, you know, rightly so have focused very much on racism um, and other forms of intersectionality, but have largely ignored both ageism and ableism okay. and how they contribute to inequity within workplaces, inequity in relationships. Um, we just haven't really embraced the conversation meaningfully to, to understand how that plays out. And while we're gaining momentum of DEI when it comes to race and when it comes to other forms of 
discrimination, sexism, homophobia, all of that, it's time to open the door and say, we need to have ageism and ableism as part of those conversations too. Yeah. They're really layered, layered on each other, on top of each other. Absolutely. I think that, I mean, talk about research in diversity, equity, and inclusion in the last year that also has, I think I've noticed greatly improved and, um, waking people up to the realities for people who are discriminated against in our country. And yeah, great. Um, the other great thing about yeah. COVID is I think that it has made access to this information way more accessible because there's so many like webinars and so many, you know, zoom offerings that we can yeah. all jump on to learn more about it, to hear people talk about their own experiences, to hear how the research is translated. I think that that has been great. And you've seen that with ageism too. Uh, it just, it needs to continue. Right. Right. I mean, I think all of us were on like three different webinars a day, like in June, July, August, (laughs) it was like, I was, I made a Google doc just with notes from these webinars I was doing. I don't even know where I, I just got the email and I signed up and it was such a, it was such a huge summer of just like learning yeah, more and noticing my own biases and and I'm recognizing that yeah major growth huge yep. summer for growth yeah absolutely um well so we like to we like to talk a little bit about um with all of our guests what um they might be most afraid of in regards to your own aging and longevity but on the other hand if you don't want to talk about what you're afraid of what most excites you about your own aging and longevity i don't mind talking about both Okay. So I think it's important to, to speak at all. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I think that that question is a really important one that what are we afraid of? Because as humans, we are all going to bring fears and anxieties with us, especially about the unknown and your aging is largely unknown. So there's things we know that we can do to help us stay healthy, to help us eat right and think right, get our mind right. Um, to prepare financially, we can do all of those things, but you know, a lot of it is going to be out of our control and just Mm -hmm. as the world unfolds. And I think like most people, for me, the fear is going to be around loss. So it's going to be around losing the people that mean the most to me, um, and having to, to rebuild myself in that way. That's scary. I don't think no matter how you, you look at it, it's not going to be scary or sad, Um, that said, I think the thing that excites me most is the unlimited opportunity for development that it's just, we, we keep carving this path and we keep be, we, we keep having the ability to re-envision our future selves Mm -hmm. and to really focus on our future self, um, acknowledging everything that's happened so far in our lives, who we are at this moment, knowing that we get to take all of that with us and then, recraft it into future versions of us. Maybe I'll love some of the things I do now. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll find new things that I love to do. Maybe I'll have different relationships that enrich me in different ways. Maybe there'll be a new hobby in my future that I will learn more about that I ever could have possibly imagined. That's really exciting. Yeah. So acknowledging the fear to me is really important. And then putting it in its perspective and looking forward to all of the unknowns in a positive way, I think is kind of how I cope with it. Now, you know, me, I'm an optimist. I'm a very (laughs) much a glass half full kind of girl. So that is probably not surprising to you. I have a lot of positivity, (laughs) but it, it truly is what helps me keep my joy. 
yeah. is to, you know, think about the endless possibilities for growth moving forward. Yeah. That remind reminded me of like a perspective I had growing up about aging. Like I just assumed life was over at like in your sixties. <laughs> I can't believe I used to think like that, but I feel like the more I've, the more you're talking about it now. And it's reminded me that a couple of years ago when I got into the field, I feel like I was given like 45 years of my life back or something. Like, yeah. I feel like it's like this whole other half of my life that I just wrote off as boring and lame, but it's actually like probably going to be the happiest years of my life. Yeah. Um, it's just so much like forward to about aging. So much to look forward to yeah. so much. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, this was a really insightful conversation. It's always fun, you know, hearing more about your history and, and I'm really, really excited to read your book. Can you, you, um, can you share with the audience again, what, um, what day or what month that book is we're expecting it. I can. Yes, I can. So it's called ageism unmasked exploring age bias and how to end it. And it will be released March 1st, 2022. And you can Google it and buy it through Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited for you. It was such a pleasure talking to you, Alexa. Thank you for such a great conversation. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of what are you so effing afraid of? a podcast sponsored by the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond, a multi-voice exploration of issues to promote longevity equity, disrupt commonly held myths about aging, and share some best kept secrets emerging from evidence-based gerontology. On behalf of myself, Ann Welliford, and my co-hosts, Alexa Bannertrek and Nico Stankulescu, and the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond team, thank you. We hope that you will join us again as we continue to disrupt common myths and fears about aging and longevity. So listen along and share with us. What are you so effing afraid of?